We are reading in Acts chapter 20. We're going to pick up reading from verse 13. So we finished that, that experience at, at, at Troas, where, where, um, where they had the Lord's Supper and that young man fell, fell down and broke, broke uh, well, presumably broke his neck, but was dead and then came and then uh, he got healed. So let's pick it up in verse 13 of Acts chapter 20. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he, came, and, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to, set, had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to, to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Okay, so you can actually... Uh, uh, get a map and actually track this right on through. Some of the names of, of the cities have changed, but you can, uh, I'm sure, find a map, and f- or a lot of times there's maps in the back of your Bible, see the, the third missionary journey of Paul and see him going along. But it, it says in verse 13, but we going ahead to the ship. So in other words, now Luke, who wrote this, this account in Acts, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is now traveling again with Paul. So the two of them are traveling together. And that's why he says, he says uh, uh, we did this. And then they arrived in, in, in Chios, and they set sail for Samos, and, and so on. Um, and, and, and then it talks about how Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That was verse 16, for the day of Pentecost, because even to this day, that is a celebration day, 50 days after the Passover. Actually, Paul, we had read previously, had tried to get to Jerusalem by the Passover. Now he was trying just to get to Jerusalem 50 days after the Passover for this next feast. And so Paul lived very much as a Jew. He lived very much in many ways as a Jew, fulfilling many of the laws that that were required of him as a Jew, but that was out of something that he wanted to do. It wasn't something that he was compelled to do anymore because he had been freed from that, nor did he put that upon any of us, nor upon other Jews. But then it says that, that he, he wanted to hurry and he, passed, he, he didn't stop at Ephesus. Now he had spent two, two and a quarter years ministering in Ephesus and now he was sailing past it. But then when he got to Miletus, Miletus is, has got a, this, that city right now has a, a different name than Miletus, but uh, when he got there, he called for the elders from Ephesus to meet him there. So it was about 25 miles away, Miletus uh, was from Ephesus, and, and so it would be a, a brisk day's journey for the elders to come. Now this word elders, as it says in verse 17, is, is synonymous with, with several other terms. It's synonymous in this same passage with pastors or overseers and bishops. So that term is synonymous and used synonymously in this portion. So the term bishop, pastor, elder, overseer 
are used synonymously in this, in this passage. Now look at what he says in verse 18, starting to them. Now this message in verse 18 is the first recorded message that we have in the Scriptures of Paul speaking to believers. We have many recorded messages of Paul before this where he's speaking to Jews or where he's speaking to unbelievers, uh, uh, to Gentiles, to Gentile unbelievers. But now he's speaking to those who are believers and particularly those in leadership. So look what he begins to say to them in verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the message that he he starts out saying. He says, you yourselves know in verse 18, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. In other words, I was with you a long time. It turns out, later on in this passage, he says he was with them uh, uh, down in... um, Verse 31 of that same passage, it says, For a period of three years I did not cease to admonish you with tears. So, he he mentions three years. It really turns out to be two years and four months. Well, why would he say three years? Because in Jewish reckoning, a part of a year gives you a year. Gives you the whole year. A part of a day gives you the whole day. That's why when Jesus was crucified and buried on a Friday... He was in the ground on Friday, just a little part of Friday, before Saturday began. Saturday began for them, Friday at sundown. Our Friday at sundown begins their Saturday. So then he was in the ground all day Saturday. Saturday night at sundown begins Sunday. And so he was in the ground part of Friday, part of Sunday, all of Saturday. That's why he was in the ground for three days. That's what it says. And people will say, well, three days and three nights. That, again, was a terminology that was commonly used in the Bible, meaning a day. And there are many references to that, and I've talked about that before. Just, we do the same thing. So if somebody says, uh, uh, I'm 20 years old, we well understand that that might mean 20 years old plus 10 months. 20 years old plus 11 months. They don't say, I'm 21 until that birthday. So you say, well, why why do they do that? Why are they adding on 11 months? Well, it's equally wrong to take part of a day and to call it a day, or part of a year and to call it a year. They have a different reckoning. But we understand that in our present-day reckoning in the United States, that we will take a part of a year. We we won't say that that it's been a year until we've completed that whole thing. And and, uh, um, so so that's just the the, the way they reckoned it. So he had been there a long time. He says, serving with you with all humility, tears, and trials. Now, what does it do to serve for a long time? If he was with them the whole time, serving for a long time, they really got to observe Paul. This is an important thing. Because if an evangelist comes through town, you only know the evangelist based on that evening service. And for a single evening, any speaker can look good. 
And so when people say, you know, this professor is just so amazing, that, well, you know, I, I think, well, ask his children how amazing he is. Because his children live with him. Even his wife may not tell the whole truth, but ask his children, ask his teenage children what he's like. Because teenage children will really let it all hang out about what their parents are like. And so, Paul being with them for a long period of time allowed them to really observe him. He didn't just blow in, give a message and blow out. And they thought, oh, the wonderful Paul. No, he lived with them. They got to see how he handled certain situations. They got to see, did he really rise up and pray? Was he really a man of prayer? Was he really a man who was devoted to the things of God? That's what being with somebody for a long period of time does. And that's why a family really knows one another. Because they're with one another for a long period of time. We get impressed by people because we see them once. We see them once a week for an hour. And they're really impressive. But I, but I, you know, whenever people talk about this with me, I say, well, ask their children what they're really like. Their teenage children. And try to get a look, if you ever could, at their income tax forms. And then you'll see how spiritual they really are. How much of their income did they really give away? You know, because people talk a lot. But I think our, our, our income tax forms... And our family are very good testimonies of what we're like. When you're with somebody for a long time, you really get to know them. So Paul couldn't just, you know, start praising himself to that group without them really knowing what he was like. And he says, I was with you serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Look at the way this man served. He couldn't say, I was serving with you with tears. If he was not often praying with passion and with tears for the Ephesians. He couldn't say it, because they'd say, you're a liar. I never saw you with tears. And he talks about with humility. How can a man stand there and say, I have served with all humility? Unless he really did. Or else the people would call him on it. You see what I mean, how it's very different. He had been with them for a period of over two years. So they really saw how this man served. And there was not a bit of contest to what he said. In fact, at the end of this chapter, they're hugging him and weeping that he's going to be leaving, that he's going to be departing, that they may not see him again. And so he says, And trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So remember, conflict and people coming against you does not mean that God is not with you anymore. In fact, based on Scripture, if we have no contest, then we have to evaluate, am I really even serving God? Because based on the Scriptures, if you're going to be out serving Him, there's going to be a contest. There's going to be people contesting with you about your your testimony. That is an indication, scripturally, that you're out there serving And he says in verse 20, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. He says, I taught you everything, everything, everything I came across. There was no topic in the scriptures that I didn't touch upon. Everything that would have been profitable to you, I touched upon. That is a good thing about taking a book 
of the Bible and just going through it from beginning to end and working through it and presenting everything. Because there are topics that are bothersome to people. Let me give you an example of one that a lot of pastors like to skip over. Is it okay to give you one? And you'll see why pastors like to skip over this thing. You read about in, in, in Corinthians about how women should cover their head in church. Well, most pastors skip over that because most women don't like to hear about that. I will say that in this class we have covered that on at least several occasions, probably not in the last several years because we haven't gone through Corinthians. But we've covered it to go through everything that is there. And I gave you what I saw in the scriptures on it. I didn't want to skip it. I gave you what I saw. And already this bothers people. But you see what I mean? Why people like to skip this sort of thing. Paul said, I gave you everything. Everything that was profitable, I gave you. In other words, some people don't like to address other topics. Some people don't like to address the topics of immorality or adultery or divorce. Pastors hate to deal with the issue of divorce from the pulpit. Why? Because so many men and women in the congregation feel convicted because of the divorces they've been through, because the divorce rate is high throughout the country, and it's the same in the church as it is outside the church, which is near 50%. So half of the people have gone through divorce, so a lot of them start squirming in their chair. So it's difficult for the pastor to share on it because he knows it's difficult for the people. In this class, it's easy because... All of you are too young to have gone through divorces, or most of you probably. But give that another decade, and that won't be the case anymore, statistically. And this is why I say you really want to get married according to God's will, in God's time, God's plan, and to the person that God would have for you. Because no young person that I know has ever walked into marriage thinking, I'm going to get a divorce. They've all felt, no, we're not getting a divorce. Of course not. We love each other. So if everybody set out that way and 50% of the people go through divorce, it's not an easy thing. And this is why it's important to obey the Word of God. But you see, there are topics that people skip. Paul never skipped the issues of divorce. He never skipped the issues of covering. Never did. He never skipped the issues of immorality. Both sex before marriage and sex outside of marriage, extramarital sex. He never skipped any of those issues. He addressed them all head on. And that's the beautiful thing about the Scriptures, because it knows our tendencies, it knows what we are like. And if you say you have no struggles in those areas, you're a liar. People struggle with these things. And this is why it's there in the Word of God. Paul said, I spoke with you, I was teaching you publicly, and from house to house. In other words, he would go into houses and he would minister to people. There were one-on-one -on -one situations, difficulties that, that families were having, that kids were having, that parents were having, that in relationships, that couples were having. He, he was instructing them. He was also doing it publicly. And he was active. I mean, this is the beautiful thing. I've seen people in ministry that spend so little time ministering. They're in quote-unquote, full-time ministry, and they'll do their, their little thing once, once a week in the evening. And the rest of the time, they do very little. I'm thinking, what do you do? Paul was extremely active. The ministry is not a place you go to hang out. You know, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, the Prince of Preachers, 
had a, a Bible school in the 1800s. And he said that, that young people would come and they, they'd want admittance to his school. And he'd say, well, tell me, why do you want to be admitted? They said, well, you know, I tried being a grocer. That didn't work out. I tried going, being a lawyer. That didn't work out. And uh, I tried being a businessman. That didn't work out. So I'm, I'm trying this. And he'd say, you're not suited. You're not suited. If anybody is going to be called to the pastor, I'll tell you, and he said the same thing, they'd be good at anything they do. Because they're extremely hardworking if they're going to be a successful pastor. So you take, for example, Ed Young of, of Second Baptist Church. I mean, the way he went, that church has gone from 250 people to like 50,000 over multiple campuses. Anything, any job that guy did, he'd be successful at. And so, it's not a place you go in ministry to settle down if you want to minister the way you're supposed to minister. He says in verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he was doing. He was testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some Christians who are enamored with Jews, who think the Jews are the most fascinating things. Oh, you're a Jew? Can I touch you? They're just amazed with Jews, think the Jews can do no wrong, even after they've read the Old Testament and the New Testament, think that, you know, think that Jews don't need repentance toward God. That Jews, if, as long as you're a good, faithful Jew, you're getting to heaven. And that's what Jews think. And there are some Christians that think the same thing. But Paul didn't think that. Paul said, I testified both to Jews and Greeks. Greeks are synonymous with Gentiles. It's the broad category of non-Jews. Of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That everybody, everybody, Jew or Gentile, must repent and must have faith in God. Repentance is not merely feeling sorry for your sin. That is a start. Because before we, we, we repent, we have to feel sorry for what we've done. If we don't feel sorry, if we think we've done no wrong, then there's nothing to repent of. But we must first feel sorry for what we've done, which can lead us to repentance. Repentance is this. I'm going to demonstrate repentance. Repentance is a turn of 180 degrees. That's what it means to turn around. Go the other direction. That's what repentance means. You see, sorrow is different than repentance. Sorrow will come before repentance. Sorrow may be there during the act of repentance. But repentance means that I want to turn from my actions. And should you stumble again, you turn again from your actions. There is repentance. And it's not just one time we repent. There are some struggles that we struggle with that need numerous repentances. Where we turn again and again and we cry out, God forgive me. I have seen men sorry for their sins with no intention of turning from them. Realizing that what they were doing is wrong. But with no intention of turning from them. And you would say, well why is that? If somebody's sorry about it, why don't they turn? Because we're stinking sinners. Because we don't have the tendency to do what we know is right. And then it says, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, sorrow leads to repentance and repentance then leads to salvation. 
It is that sequence. That's in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. That sequence. Sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation, it says. That is the sequence. Sorrow, repentance, salvation. And then he goes on here in verse 21 of Acts chapter 20. He says, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look in, 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 in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Classic, absolutely classic verse. If you hadn't committed this to memory, you really ought to. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. That's Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please God. If you do not have faith, you cannot please God. How can I say that with such emphasis? Because that's exactly what it says. I didn't say that. The writer of the book of Hebrews said that. God said that. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Whoever comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. So just to believe that God exists is not enough. Whoever comes to God must believe that God is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. What does that mean? It means that if I seek Him, He rewards me. That's what it means. If you seek God, He will reward you. That is faith. And without that, you cannot please God. So there must be a belief that if I seek God, He will reward me. You say, well, that's self-centered. Well, too bad. That's what the Bible says. What do you want me to do with it? If you seek God, He will reward you. That's what it says. It doesn't say that He'll give you a big house. It doesn't say that He'll give you a lot of money. He says you'll get a reward. I don't know what that reward is. For some, that reward is, is, is getting thrust through with a spear and being promoted to glory and spending eternity with Him. He will reward you any way He chooses to. But that is faith. And without that, there's no pleasing God. So if you are one of the folks that has these little pity parties, and I have these occasionally, where I get all, all sad about something, and I go and I suck my thumb, and I sit in the corner, and I rock back and forth. I go through that sometimes too. But you can't stay there. You have to believe that if you're going to serve God, He will reward you. So get past that. That's why Paul said, I first talked to you about repentance toward God and then faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. And without faith, we cannot please Him. And part of faith is that I believe that if I serve you, O God, you will reward me. This is what He taught them. You repent and you serve God. You repent and you serve God. This is, was His message. Then He goes on. He says in verse 22 of Acts chapter 20, Now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. 
But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. Look at what this man says. He says, the Spirit has revealed to me. Now, we don't know if this, that, that bound in spirit it actually has a definite article there. So it could mean his own personal spirit or it could mean the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's bound in spirit. He's on his way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Except that the Holy Spirit, now the Holy Spirit, now it's the Holy Spirit, so we know the Holy Spirit is testifying to him that bonds and afflictions await me. He knows when he gets to Jerusalem, that's it. Bonds and afflictions await him. Well, if bonds and afflictions are awaiting you, why go? He's not being disobedient by going. He never says, the Holy Spirit says, don't go. The Holy Spirit just says, bonds and afflictions await me. Many people we'll see on his trip back want to keep him from going to Jerusalem. Because even prophets come and say, you're going to be bound when you go there. But look what he says. He says in verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. There's nothing here that I hold dear. There's nothing of myself that I'm holding dear. So that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the grace of God. This is very, very Jesus-like. This is exactly what Jesus said. Look in, look in uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to start reading from verse 23. And Jesus, John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so remember, the Son of Man was glorified in His resurrection. The hour has come for the end. Now remember, John is not written in, in, in uh, uh, sequential order. So 12, he's talking about the end for himself. Verse 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Look what he says. He says, I'm going to the cross, and where I am, you're coming to. If anyone serves me, in verse 26, he must follow me. You want to serve God, you must follow Him. If you want to serve God, you must follow Him. If you don't want to serve God, fine. But if you want to serve God, you must be willing to follow Him. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. And by the way, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you want the honor of God? Do you want the honor of God? 
Examine yourself. Examine your own heart. Do you want the honor of God? Will you serve Him? Will you serve Him? Or will you sit back like the masses of Christians and refuse to serve God? Refuse to pipe up to speak a word that's going to bring any affliction upon yourself. To do anything to serve Him that will will bring any affliction or hardship upon yourself. Will you take a few hours each week in service to Him? Will you? Or will you sit like the masses of believers and say, I'm too busy. I have no time for any of this. Do you know how busy I am? I'm a very busy person. You know, give me a break. Learn to serve Him. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. I know you're tired. So what? Do you think Paul wasn't tired? I know you have a lot to do, a lot on your plate. So do a bunch of other believers who are serving him. You're not the only one. You serve him. What do you want to do? Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose! This is what he says. He says, if you want to, he says, he says, my soul is troubled. He says, now my soul has become troubled. Well, what's troubling your soul, Jesus? Uh, well, just that I'm going to get, you know, hung on a cross and have all the sins of all eternity heaped upon me. So my soul is troubled. But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Look in, in uh, uh, you say, well, th- th- this, is, this is one portion. Look, look in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Amazing the words that Jesus spoke. Matthew chapter 10, read from verse 37. He who loves father or mother, Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If you love anything, and the examples he gives is mother, father, son, daughter. If you love anything more than Jesus, you're not worthy of him. Remember, when you become a parent, you're going to hold this little baby. And you're not going to ever want this little baby to let, let go. Remember, at that age, commit him to the Lord. Commit her to the Lord. Say, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want, let me never hold this child back. Because the biggest thing against Christian missions are Christian parents. I don't want my child to go to Afghanistan. They could be killed. Well, duh, that's what ministry is. Because you love your son, you love your daughter more than you love Jesus. Say it. Don't ever let that happen to you. Commit them to the Lord. Commit them to the Lord. Let the Lord take them. Lord, do with them whatever you would have. Every morning after I get done praying, I go and I pray for all my children. And, and two of them are already moved up out of, the, out of the house. And so before we have our family prayer times, I have their pictures on the wall. And I go to those pictures and I remind God of His promises. And then I say, Lord, never let me restrict what you're going to do with these kids. Send them wherever you want to send them. Let them go wherever you want them to go. Never, never let me stand in the way. I don't want to stand in the way between them and God. Let them go. 
Paul knew that afflictions and bonds awaited him. Oh, well, then maybe he shouldn't go because Jesus wouldn't want us to get hurt, right? Huh? No! The Holy Spirit told him. Paul did exactly what he was supposed to do. He said, my life is not precious to me. It's of no account to me, he says, my own life. Look in Mark, Mark chapter 8. Jesus, again, says it quite emphatically. Lest from the Matthew portion, we think that, oh, maybe this is, he, he didn't mean what he said. Look in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Look, if you lose your life for his sake and for the gospel's sake, you'll save your life. Now he includes the gospel in it. If you love mother or father, son or daughter, you're not worthy of him. In verse 34, he talks about, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must follow, he must deny himself. So if you love yourself more than him, you're not worthy of him. You take up your cross and you follow him. Take up your cross and you follow him. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. And he says, by the way, let me tell you something. If you desire to save your life, to keep your life from trouble and from harm, you're going to lose it. You will lose your life. But if you are willing to lay down your life for, the sake, for His sake and the sake of the Gospels, you will really gain your life. You really will gain your life. Your children will be different if you're willing to lay down your life. Your families will be different. Your homes will be different. If you're willing to lay down your life, your home takes on a different perspective. It's not this current constant worry that, oh, you know, we're just trying to make ends meet. It takes on a whole different perspective if you're willing to lay down your life. This is what Paul said. He says, my life is of no account to me. I'm willing to do this. What Paul did was not wrong. It was right. This is what the gospel calls us to. You don't have to choose this way. You don't have to. But without it, there is no honor. There is no honor from God. Whoever serves me, Jesus said, the Father will honor him. You want the honor? You serve him. You don't want to serve him. You will not have the honor. And the material things in life will eat you up and eat up your family. It will eat you up. And I have seen it. I've seen it in the lives of believers over and over and over again. When you're willing to take that which is precious to you, your money, your time, your reputation, your resources, and commit it to God, you will keep your life to life eternal. You will gain your life and not lose it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would take my life and do with it as you would have. To not fear the mockings, to not fear the the talk, but to speak your word, to openly testify of Jesus Christ and his goodness. 
that I would be willing to lay down my life for your sake and for the sake of the gospel. And so, keep my life. Lord, I pray that for my children, that they would have a passion and a fire for you. And I pray that, Lord, for these young people, that they would choose this day whom they will serve, either themselves and this world, or Jesus and the gospel. Father, I pray that this day they would make a decision in their hearts. This day they would choose and they would live their lives accordingly. And Father, I pray that they would choose to keep of themselves of no matter that their life means little compared to that testimony of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. That they would give of their time, of their resources, and even of their very life for the hope of the Gospel. Father, I thank You and I commit them to You. In the name of Jesus, Amen.